Welcome back to Season Uno of the Jonathan underscore Foster podcast. And today is a very special episode. It's because today the long gestation of a new book is over, and uh, we're introducing this book. I say we. It makes me sound cooler. I am introducing this uh, brand new book. It's entitled, Questions About Sexuality That Got Me Uninvited From My Denomination. That's correct. I am incapable of writing a book with a short title. And yes, that's correct. The questions I posed to my former ecclesial hierarchy, well, they got me, as I've been saying, uninvited from the group. My life has presented some very interesting paths and journeys and experiences for me. And just about every few years, there's been some new pain that I've had to deal with or or walk through. And necessarily then, because of that, I've questioned a lot of things. And uh, the presuppositions that I was carrying into all those different experiences of pain didn't exactly uh, help me. It didn't exactly carry me through it as well as I would have liked. And so um, I just kept formulating questions about a lot of different things. Now, I wasn't necessarily setting out to formulate questions about LGBTQ plus or, you know, issues of homosexuality and how to read sexuality better in the Bible. That wasn't my intent at all. It just happened that when you start to go down certain theological paths, namely love, which was the thing that I was really committed to, like I kept thinking there's, there's got to be this thing out there that, that works better than what I had. When you're committed to that, it will, oh man, it's like water rushing to the lowest level. It will find all the little broken cracks and spots. And, um, you know, once you let love go, it just, it doesn't stop. And so as that took place in my life, eventually it led me to areas where I was seeing people being marginalized. And in particular areas where I have played a role in marginalizing others, because this is what love does. It gives us It heals us, but it also gives us a new lens whereby which we can critique and challenge the way that we've been living. And so it was just only a matter of time before I saw the inconsistencies with how me and people like me in my tradition were treating LGBTQ plus people. And if you're from that tradition and you're listening to this right now, you're probably very frustrated because you might be thinking, well, I don't treat LGBTQ plus people poorly. Well, just pause and consider some of the things that some of us are saying. And if you don't mind me saying, read the book and listen to the podcast, and maybe you will learn how the paradigm that we've been using has been putting us in a really, really difficult position, I would say even untenable position, where we're calling out certain sins in ways that I just don't think Jesus ever, ever intended for us to do. And so... My former denomination essentially just became uncomfortable with the questions that I was posing to them because they were challenging both the spoken and the unspoken presuppositions that they had about theology and about life. Whatever else happens today, I want to give you opportunity to hear from my friend Brett. Brett was working at a denominational seminary when he came out, and he says some really good things here, some difficult things, but some really good, healthy things. 
and I'm very proud of him. I mean, as difficult as it is for what I've been through, he's been through far worse. So I'm just proud to be associated with him. A few days after I'd publicly come out, I was approached by the now former administration of the seminary with a request to sit down with them in the recruitment office, my office, for a meeting. Then they told me my leadership roles were going to be reevaluated if I were not silent about being a Christian who is also openly LGBT. I was also told we aren't there and you need to be silent multiple times. I was told to remove my Facebook announcements and also to quit talking about being gay in general. Of course, I knew where my church stood on human sexuality. Of course, I knew what my church did and did not affirm in regards to LGBT persons. And at that time, I even agreed. But I also knew the harm that my church had caused to the LGBT community. And I felt that we had to take a responsibility for that. I put flesh and bone to a conversation that at times often felt disembodied. And instead of being welcomed with dignity, grace, and holy love, as they say in the manual... I was met with an ultimatum that would affect my financial and academic stability and at the same time severely hinder my emotional, physical, and spiritual health. I became alienated from different church communities because talk began to spread across various districts in the denomination. It was an isolation against my own choosing. I received messages and letters from pastors and leaders in the church claiming to express their concern. And while I believe they were wanting to genuinely connect with me in a way uh, that they believed to be faithful to the gospel, what I received instead were messages full of false assumptions and harmful claims decorated with, but we still love you as a bookend. I became depressed. I often described it to my friends and therapists as living as a person who has already died. My purpose and meaning felt as if they were stripped from me. Several times I found myself aimlessly driving my car, entertaining the thought of crashing into something to end the pain, the loneliness, the desolation, the ambushed and cons- that ambushed and consumed my existence. Other times I sat in my car in front of the local emergency room, clutching my steering wheel, screaming out for help in my motionless silence. I sat there hoping and waiting on someone to notice me and to check on me because I couldn't will myself to go inside and check myself in, even though I knew I needed it. These suicidal thoughts didn't come because I was gay. They came because I was not human enough to the faith community that originally claimed me. These suicidal thoughts came because I was told I had to be silent in order to be loved. But I was already being silent. I had been silent all my life. 
I took a year off of seminary. And during this year of seeking health and compassion towards myself, the silence that was held over my head as an ultimatum had turned into a silence of contemplation. And it was in this season that I decided I was going to own my narrative so no one else could. It was in this season that I began stepping into more of who I am. It was in this season that I decided I was not going to be silent any longer. I have found a community who loves me and supports me. One that challenges me to grow in grace. And I am still becoming, I am still learning who I am and who God has created me to be. The church that raised me and claimed me for so long decided to choose money over my life to protect the survival of an institution instead of my well-being, instead of my humanity. And I want to learn how to continuously forgive her because I still love her. However, that does not mean I sit back and take the stuff that's thrown at me. It just means that I am finding grace and not being reactionary. It means that I am finding worth in persons that are not attached to the actions of others. I do not have all the answers, but I'm working on learning more and more, and I haven't given up. There have been many times where I've wanted to, and it would be okay if I did. There have been many times where I've taken breaks, and that's where I'm at. And honestly, that's good enough. Well, you're right, Brett. That is good enough. I respect his vulnerability and so much of what he's saying here. I think maybe the thing that's most striking for me is his comment about his suicidal thoughts not being attached to the fact that he's gay. Rather, they were attached to the fact that the church that he had called home his entire life was disowning him. It's that kind of unthinkable position that the denomination has put pastors and leaders and seminary leaders and administrators in that has caused me to continue to deconstruct what I believe and to reconstruct something newer and, of course, to podcast and to write the book. This book, um, and also now because of that, this episode, has taken um, quite a while to put together. I had someone just ask me this morning, uh, how long did it take you to write the book? And my snappy answer is, well, it took me 50 plus years to write this book. Now, I know what they meant and others when they bring that up. They want to know essentially, you know, the book writing process. How long does it take? And it's different with everyone. You know, people who are better and smarter than me could probably whip it out quicker. But something like this that I put together probably took me 18 months, maybe two years uh, from beginning to end. Although at the beginning, I didn't realize I was writing a book. But truly, it really took 50 plus years because it's taken my entire life and all the experiences that I've been through and all the things that I learned and then going through stuff and pain in order for me to be able to unlearn some things. You know, all of that takes quite a while. And um, and that's been the case with me and all the way along, especially the last 
three, four, five, six years, you know, I've just been reading more and more and listening and having conversations, you know, for our context today, uh, conversations with both gay and straight people, and just trying to meditate and reflect and pray and really think, you know, what's the best approach with all this and what would honor love and what would honor who I think embodied love, and that was Jesus. So it takes time. I mean, I mentioned this to you because maybe you're like me. Maybe you get frustrated and you want to rush the process of your learning. Um, it kind of reminds me of there's an old story about the um, the guy who was studying under a spiritual mentor. And the mentor had given him a bunch of assignments. And the guy is impatient, you know, and he says, uh, how long is this going to take? And the mentor says, well, it's probably going to take you about five years to get this. And so the guy says, well, what if I double down on this and work really hard and sleep less and just give this this great effort? And the spiritual mentor said, well, let's see. In that case, it'll probably take you 10 years. And I relate to that guy because that's how I've approached so many things in life. And in retrospect, I realize it's only made it more difficult. And so patience has become a huge piece of the story for me, but I've had to approach and reapproach a bunch of different ideas um, because of the pain I went through and because I just, I was desperate enough. And if you want to know more about my desperation, you need to go back and listen to episode one um, and or read some of my other books. But that desperation carved out a space inside of me. And it was a place where I could lay aside the fear of oh, what if I find something that's different than what I had known in the past? I mean, at that point, I really did want to find something that was different because I was hurting so much. And so I'm thankful to tell you that I have been finding things, and I'm not completely there yet. But man, I hear the river, and it's good, and it's clean, and it's the only place I really want to go. It kind of makes me think of the the tributaries that, that carve their way through the canyons, and all the while, they're, they're rushing through the wilderness to get to that one big, great river so that they can all come together. I feel like maybe in a way that's a bit of a metaphor of who I am and maybe who a lot of us are. We're trying new tributaries and trails, and they're carving their way through the former theological, philosophical hills and mountains, the ones we used to hang out at. But now new stuff is happening, and we're, we're trying to follow the water of life, and we don't really care what we leave behind. We're not trying to be disrespectful. We're just really committed to finding something better and new. We can hear the water out there, and we're going after it. So I wrote the book for three basic reasons. First of all, and you know, we should, we should probably have some cool music here. Ooh, nice. Yeah. 
Thank you. So first, I wrote it for LGBTQ plus human beings, in particular for those who come from a similar background as mine, and I would describe that background as certainly Protestant, evangelical, uh, conservative, maybe even quasi-fundamentalist, and in my case, a holiness background. So for the LGBTQ plus crowd that comes from that tradition, I wanted you to know that there are some of us out here who, yes, are attempting to interpret the sacred text we call the Bible through a lens of love and all of its possibilities rather than a lens of fear and all of its limitations. Secondly, (laughs) nice. I wanted to do my part to present to all of us, heterosexuals as well as the rest of the group, some ideas and some thoughts that I think are reasonable, are reasonably intelligent, um, are generally well thought out, because I know there are a lot of people that, again, come from my former background. They're really good people. They really want better answers. But because of the presuppositions that have been handed to them, by the way, presuppositions, um, that's like a lens, basically, you look through. It's kind of like You carry presuppositions with you everywhere you go, kind of like luggage or baggage, though baggage would be a negative connotation. But you take your presuppositions into every single situation. They color how you learn and how you think. And so for folks that come from my background that have only been handed one presupposition, and that is basically anything that comes remotely close to non-heterosexuality, off or wrong or sinful or a complete abomination. I'm trying to give you some different insight to think through these things. Now, you have to be intellectually honest. This is the catch. And I'm not trying to be cute or disrespectful. This is the catch. You have to be intellectually honest. The problem is there's a whole bunch of us from that way of life who aren't particularly intellectual, first of all, And I'm thinking of one of my favorite opening lines of a nonfiction book ever is Mark Knoll's line in his book about evangelism. I think it's the early 2000s that came out, maybe the late 90s. His very first line says, the scandal of the evangelical mind is that there isn't much of one. Now, when I first read that, I took exception to it a little bit. But I got to tell you, all these years later, it's pretty accurate And so a lot of us aren't really very intellectual, or maybe I should say it this way. It's not that we don't have the capacity. It's just that we've been handed these other answers. And um, instead of really critically engaging them, we've just been plug and play. And, you know, it's time now because society is complex and our lives are complex. It's time to dive into some of the intellect of some of this. So I hope some of the things that I write about, I'm not suggesting to you are like the greatest, most intellectual academic things you've ever heard, but I think they are going to give you some new handles. Here's the second piece of that phrase, intellectually honest. We have to be willing to own up to the fact that the ways that we have thought of the Bible and interpreted scripture and thought of God in particular as we come to him through this sacrificial, violent lens, that these ways have caused damage to a lot of people. LGBTQ plus are just the latest in the long line of folks who have been hurt by unhealthy religion. 
So I wrote this for intellectually honest people, and you you really have to kind of have both in order for this to make any sense. Thirdly, yes, I wrote this so that folks who were a part of my former tradition might have access to the actual questions that I did pose in the hopes that they would see that they were reasonably intelligent questions. Now, I have to admit that a bunch of the reason I wanted to do that was probably selfish. Like, of these three reasons, this third reason is the least honorable, because really what I'm trying to do is to just let people know that, okay, I'm not a complete idiot. I haven't lost my mind. So these are reasonably well-thought-out questions. I say I say the word reasonable all the time in the book now and in my talk, because that's just the way it is. It's like, look, man, if you have thought through some of this stuff and just connect some of the dots. It's reasonable to ask these things. I'm not even saying I have all the answers. I'm just saying we should really, we should really create a space where we can talk about all of this because we're an organization that rallies around Jesus. Jesus rallied around humanity. It would be awesome if we would be known for that too. And so I'm just trying to give evidence that I'm not crazy. And and maybe doing that, some people will realize that. But then again, maybe not. Like I said, it's the least honorable of the three, but I got to be honest, that was a piece of it too. should be aware of before you read the book. And basically, it's this idea that a lot of folks from a more constrictive, conservative mindset bring into the conversation in particular as it pertains to the Bible. So I hear things like this frequently. People will come to me and say things like, you know, you're making it too hard. The Bible is, it's just, it's just more plain than, than you're making it. Uh, or you use too many words. I can't keep up with all your concepts. By the way, I am guilty probably of using too many words, he says while he's recording a podcast, or too many concepts. Um, other times people will come to me and say things like, well, my Bible says... And when anyone ever starts a sentence with, well, my Bible says, nothing good ever comes after the rest of that start of the sentence. First of all, let me just say that if the Bible makes sense to you and it works for you, great. I really don't have any need to try to be like the rock in the shoe of your life and to make you miserable. Uh, that's not my point. And I'm totally fine with saying to you, it's cool. And really, I would just love to be able to give you a hug <laughs> or a high five or something. Honestly, I think most of us in hum- most of us humans, we just need hugs. That's basically what it boils down to. And, and I'm not trying to be patronizing or demeaning. Like, I really mean that. So much of our religious practice has... Um, induced stress and anxiety in our culture. And I just don't think it's healthy. So if you feel fine about where you're at, that's great. Now, I would imagine based on the fact that you're listening to this 
And also based on the fact that you're a human being and you live in a very complex world with lots of friends and family members, maybe some of whom are dealing with, you know, sexual identity and those kinds of things. I would imagine you recognize that um, all the answers aren't super easy to find. By the way, one of the questions I often ask folks who want to tell me how plain the Bible is and how easy it is to read. If it's so easy to read, why is there so much disagreement amongst well-intended people? If it's so easy to conclude exactly what the Bible is saying, why is there so much disagreement? But I'm getting ahead of myself. The point is, if it's working for you, that's great. And you've probably created meaning, and, and that's wonderful. But the second piece is, there's a lot of us where we don't exactly fit into that category, and it's been more difficult for us to read the Scripture, in particular as we've gone through very complex things in life. Now, that doesn't mean that we have a low view of Scripture, which is also something people tell me from time to time. Um, I actually don't think I have a low view of Scripture. I actually think I have a really high view of Scripture. My view of Scripture is so high that I've actually changed my entire life to make it fit better so that I can read this life-giving text better. That's not a low view. That's a high view of Scripture. And one of the ways to read it better is just to be honest about the reality that there are a lot of problematic passages within the text itself. Like, it's okay to, to be honest about that. Like, if you read from Genesis to the book of Revelation from cover to cover, you're going to come across multiple times where even the writers themselves don't always agree on what they're talking about. For example, take an idea like sacrifice. Now, the Levitical dudes definitely say sacrifice is important. In fact, they're going to tell you that that is the only way for God to be pleased. But David comes along a few generations later, and he begins to question this. Hosea, the prophet, definitely questions this. Hosea says, God desires mercy, not sacrifice. And it's striking to note that Jesus doesn't pick up on what the Leviticus people wrote about. He picks up on what David, and in particular what Hosea says. I love the one little story in the New Testament, and I don't remember offhand where it's at. But basically, you know, the religious leaders are coming at Jesus with all these questions about the different things in life, you know, about policies and principles and, you know, sub points and points that are in the manual and human sexuality statements and what's right and what's wrong. It's almost like, in my imagination, Jesus forms a T with his two hands and he says, time out, time out, wait a minute. You guys are coming at me with all these questions, getting worked up about all of this stuff. Here's what I would like you to do, okay? I would like you to go and consider that Hosea said, God desires mercy, not sacrifice. It's almost as if Jesus is saying to them, if, if you could just get your brain wrapped around this one amazing thing, it'll alleviate all the stress and the anxiety of all these other questions that you're bringing to me. There are countless other examples where the writers of the text don't always agree with each other. So it makes it difficult, and I would say it actually makes it impossible to say, well, just do what the Bible says. Because how do you do what the Bible says when the Bible sometimes disagrees with itself? 
I think this is a really helpful metaphor. I'm going to take something I heard Brian Zahn say, and I'm going to adapt it a little bit. But I think it's more helpful to think of Christianity and the Bible as, yes, symbiotic. I mean, they, they belong to each other, but not as exactly, not, not exactly the same thing. So Christianity becomes something like a forest that grows out of the landscape of the Bible. Christianity is the forest that grows out of the landscape of Scripture. That doesn't mean they're the same thing. Christianity as a forest that's growing above and beyond naturally can become more interesting and complex and beautiful than the dirt out of which it comes. Now, it still needs the dirt. By the way, it still needs water, too the water of life, that great river that's running through the forest that nourishes it and brings it to life and helps Christianity go somewhere that the landscape, that the soil, that the dirt could never go. In this way, Christianity has helped culture move forward, even in areas where there wasn't necessarily a specific biblical directive or a biblical verse to point to to tell Christianity to do this. For example, think about something like slavery. Even though the Bible never denounces slavery, Christianity can, because we're not tethered to the Bible that way. We've been able to see that there's this forest growing, like that there's this movement. Uh, I might call it an arc, an A-R-C. There's an arc in Scripture, and it, it doesn't keep us tethered to the old way of reading it. There's a movement. So even though if you, were, if you were to take a plain reading of the Bible, you might walk away from it saying, oh, the Bible condones slavery. Christianity can say, no, it doesn't, because we're a part of the forest that grows out of the Bible. You could read the sacred text, and you could walk away from it easily. People still do, and arrive at the conclusion that women shouldn't be holding any leadership positions, or that their capacities are diminished. Christianity can come to a new conclusion, a better conclusion than that. How? Not because, this, not because you can find a scripture that says that specifically, but because we see the ark, we recognize that Christianity is the forest that moves out of that soil. It's a forest sustained by water, by the water of life, that great river. And if we just keep moving to the water of life, It's going to affect not just slavery and women in leadership. It's going to affect everything. I'm not suggesting the following is the most academic, scientific way to approach how to discern for you what is right or wrong. But for me, man, I just pretty quickly, pretty young in life, came to the conclusion that life is not as black and white as all the religious people wanted me to think. Um, You know, it's complex, and there are a lot of different... There's ethics involved, there's behaviors involved, there's identities involved, personalities. The Word of God itself is complex. And so what I found... I was doing with lots of different issues, and it certainly turned out to be the case with this particular issue. What I found that I was doing was 
taking some of the questions and the problems that I had that I could definitively answer one way or the other and basically putting them in this kind of corner of my mind's eye and then taking the rest of the questions that I had that I couldn't answer definitively and also allowing them to be in my mind's eye. So now across the whole landscape, I had different questions and issues that I could see, some of which I could respond right away with a yes or a no, and many of which I couldn't do that. And so I just assigned basically a neutral value to them. And then I allowed all those different things to be dots that I then started to connect again in my mind's eye, waiting to see what kind of picture would emerge. Something like, you know, when my boys were younger and we would go camping, which, by the way, only happened, I think, twice. (laughs) Uh, Well, we did do a lot of hiking, just not a lot of camping. So I want to be clear about that. But I remember going to Sedona with them and sitting out under the stars. Oh, my word. Or at Rocky Point down in Mexico off the Sea of Cortez and, and all these different stars. And you all know what this is like. All of us have looked up into the night sky and have tried to connect the dots, the stars to make shapes. What I found I was doing was taking all of these issues, putting them across the night sky of my mind, so to speak, and allowing certain constellations to emerge. And lo and behold for me, after a while, and again, if you've listened to this podcast, you you know that this didn't just happen overnight for me. It wasn't one camping trip. It was a lot of camping trips. After a lot of time, the constellation began to emerge in my mind's eye. And the constellation for me was overwhelmingly one of grace and love and mercy and inclusivity. I mention this to you because maybe for you, you are someone who is really impatient to get to an answer. And I feel like I can call that out because I am the chief most impatient person that I know. I rush far too often. It has been the thing that has wreaked havoc in my life on multiple occasions. So I feel like I'm qualified to go ahead and name that thing for you in your life. But maybe you're the kind of person who needs to rush in order to find out what the answer is. And in your rush, you have overlooked a few things. And so my encouragement here is, sure, maybe you can definitively answer some of the questions that I offer up. That's cool. That's fine. I highly doubt you can definitively answer all of them, but if you can, that's great too. No problem. But if you can't, my encouragement is have the intellectual honesty to sit with the dots and connect the dots and to see what kind of constellation emerges for you across the landscape of your mind's eye. is an ancient text. It's a story written by people about people who are attempting to figure out who they are and who God is. In particular, I would say they're attempting to figure out who they are and who God is as it relates to who other people are and who the gods of the other people are. And the Bible is inspired. 
But what it's inspired to do is to lead us towards Jesus. Jesus is the capital L, capital W, living word. So yes, read the words, the lowercase w words, but what we're really hoping to do is get to the living word. And there just aren't lists long enough. There just aren't enough commandments. And the commandments aren't strong enough and foolproof enough. There are no amount of points and subpoints that can be made to cover all the contingencies of sinning going on throughout the world. I mean, some of you listening to this probably right now are devising entirely new ways of sinning that we never even thought of before. As soon as you put that list together, whatever it is, what we believe about women in ministry, what we, what we believe about speaking in tongues, what the Bible has to say about miracles, what the Bible says is wrong or right about slavery, uh, what we believe about our human sexuality statements, whatever it is, as soon as you hit print, it's already outdated. I love the words of the Bible. They have life and depth and meaning, but what they point to is Jesus. And to be clear, this isn't even my idea. Jesus is the one who says this. He says, in my paraphrase, hey, all you religious people, you keep searching the scriptures diligently to see what to do, but you don't realize that all of it points to me. He says this while ministering to all the marginalized people in his culture. Because of that, I no longer personally need to see or to view the LGBTQ person as an outsider. I just view them as another human being. Of course, with an important distinction, because they are human beings who have been marginalized, the very people that Jesus identified most with. And with another important distinction, their marginalization has come by way of the church. How ironic is that? So I don't view them as I used to. Thank God for that. I'm so thankful for that. Jesus loves them no matter what. So I want to love them no matter what. That's not only good for them, it's been good for me too. So I don't view them as I used to, but I do recognize that my former denomination does. But even so, even if you do think they're wrong or sinful or an abomination, look, if Jesus became one with the marginalized in the first century, couldn't we become one with the marginalized in the 21st century? And if Jesus went outside the walls of his community to heal, forgive, eat, befriend, and identify with the foreigner, the cripple, the divorced, the deceiver, the glutton, the drunkard, the unbeliever, the prostitute, the diseased, the tax collector, the extortionist, the Samaritan, the violent, the nationalist, the adulterer, the criminal, the beggar, the leper, and the least of these, can't we at least welcome and include gay people into our church? wrap this up because I know a bunch of you are chomping at the bit to get out there and buy the book. So feel free to head to Amazon. By the way, if you use Amazon, you might as well use smile.amazon and plug in LQVE as your 501c3 group that will benefit from your shopping. But search for questions about sexuality that got me uninvited from my denomination. And I'm pretty sure that there are no other books with that title for good or for bad. 
And hey, if you even remotely like anything in the book, I highly encourage you to leave a positive review because it's possible. I mean, it's possible that the book will just get ignored. It's also possible that there will be a lot of negative, nasty reviews. And that's fine if there are. I mean, that's just a chance you take anytime you do something new. But in this case, uh, it sure would be good to also have a bunch of positive reviews from people who are open and interested in interpreting life, not through fear, but through love. And I do hope that's who you are, someone who is interested in interpreting life through a lens of love. It'll lead you to difficult places, but in the end, as the old saying goes, I find it to be so applicable in the whole context of today's episode. I sure would rather be excluded for who I include than included for who I exclude. If that doesn't sound like Jesus, I really don't know what does. Thanks so much. Thanks for being on the journey with me. I hope you enjoy the book. God bless. We'll talk to you later.